Welcome to this week's episode of The Read Out Loud, a weekly biotech podcast from STAT. I'm Meg Terrell. I'm Adam Feuerstein. And I'm Damian Garnet. It's Thursday, May 19th, and here's what we're going to talk about this week. First, a medical mystery. STAT's Helen Branswell joins us to talk about the unusual cases of hepatitis appearing worldwide in young children. Plus, we'll ask her about monkeypox. Next, what happens if the U.S. runs out of COVID funding? Stats Rachel Kors has been covering just that and joins us to explain. We'll start with a look at some of the biggest news from the week in biopharma. But first, a word about a new podcast from Stat. For far too long, racism has created a crisis in American healthcare. The whole system has failed my niece and they are continuing to fail women of color. We say something is wrong with us, it's ignored. No one is listening. My name is Nicholas St. Fleur. I'm a science reporter and host of Color Code, a new podcast from STAT. I mean, I have a mistrust in the medical establishment and I'm a researcher, like, and, 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 and part of mine is just of how I've seen providers treat my family members. Culico takes a hard look at the forces behind the stark inequities faced by black clinicians and patients. You can find Color Code on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, SoundCloud, and wherever you get your podcasts. You know, our education related to health equity kind of sucks, like in med school, right? And I'm tired of having these conversations over and over and over. And someone is like, oh, no, it's not because of X, Y, and Z inequality. And I'm like, actually, it is. Racism in medicine is a national emergency. Let's raise the alarm. So we begin our podcast this week where we ended our podcast last week. An update on the Clay Seagal saga. Damien, what happened? Right. So we learned on Monday, perhaps unsurprisingly, that Clay Seagal, the co-founder and CEO of CGen, would resign from that position and from the company's board, as we discussed at length, and we don't need to relitigate here. He was arrested and charged with domestic assault in April, uh, something that the company disclosed in early May. And so the latest disclosure is basically just that he will leave. Uh, you know, there's a separation agreement. There's some money to be worked out. But the outstanding questions that we had seven days ago, mostly when did the company learn about this and how quickly did it act, remain unanswered. Yeah. And to that latter point, Damien, I think what is kind of interesting and still ongoing is just kind of what will happen with the investigation. You know, it, it is notable that uh, Clay uh, is gone, is no longer the CEO there. But the investigation that that CGen is running is still ongoing and that there is some language in kind of his exit agreement, which, you know, there's there's different provisions there. But there is a, the one notable thing that I noticed was that there is sort of a clawback um, provision where at wherein, you know, if I, I don't know what would would trigger the clawback, meaning that, you know, Clay would have to either give up bonus or salary or or something, you know, bring it you know, send it back to the company. So that's you know, there's still maybe stuff to report on. Uh, more developments to come as that investigation winds its winds its way to a conclusion. Has his successor been announced or they're looking? He has an interim uh, person filling in and, and I guess a, a search will commence effective immediately. 
So there's a search for a Biogen CEO and a search for a CGen CEO. One person who probably won't take those jobs is Martin Shkreli. But there is news about him this Ooh, week. Good. That was a very good transition, Meg. I like that. That's excellent. <laughs> Adam, what's the latest with Martin Shkreli? Yeah, Meg. So uh, Martin is out of federal prison. He was released on Wednesday. Uh, he still has to spend a few months in a halfway house, uh, I think, in New York City. Uh, and after that, then he is actually out in the public. And it's worth remembering, you know, Meg, as you alluded to, he is legally barred from working in the pharmaceutical industry, uh, according to the ruling of a federal judge, which I thought at the time might not survive appeal, but so far has. Um, and of course, he is uh, from a previous charge barred from serving as a director or officer of a publicly traded company. He's of course not barred from using the internet, uh, which I think was uh, you know another thing that he made his name doing in the time before he was incarcerated. But yeah, I don't know. It remains to be seen what his second act will look like because of those legal constraints. Whatever it is, it will be widely covered. And Meg, uh, what's the latest on COVID? Well, the news this week is that Pfizer got emergency use authorization for a booster dose for kids ages 5 to 11, five months after their primary series. They originally got the green light in October, so a lot of those kids are that far out. Uh, we should note, of course, only about a third of kids in this age group in the U.S. have actually been vaccinated for COVID. Um, so that's a lot of folks who <laughs> don't need a booster because they haven't yet gotten their first two shots. Um, the CDC's advice. Advisory committee is meeting on Thursday to take a vote on this. And then, you know, folks who want to go get a booster, potentially if the CDC signs off, um, would be able to do that within a few days. Uh, of course, the group of parents still waiting of, you know, kids of under five are getting more and more frustrated that kids in the older age group are getting third shots before their kids are even getting one. But we are expecting to see that start to come to a head in June. Next up, we're going to talk about a medical mystery that has set epidemiologists, physicians, and parents on edge around the world. Beginning late last year, physicians began to report cases of young children, seemingly healthy, who were becoming seriously ill with an unusual form of hepatitis. The number of sickened children continues to grow. Right now, at least 22 countries have reported more than 400 cases of what's being described as pediatric hepatitis of unknown etiology or origin, meaning the cause of the severe liver inflammation and its source are not known. At least 26 of the kids have required liver transplants, and six have died, according to the World Health Organization. Our colleague Helen Branswell is a frequent guest on this podcast. We're usually talking to her about COVID, but she's also been reporting on this puzzling form of pediatric hepatitis and joins us now to discuss what's happening. Helen, welcome back. Hi, it's great to be here. So can you help us better understand what's happening to these children and how unusual these cases are? I mean, the first thing to know is that while this is a very noteworthy event, it is very rare. Um, there have been so far somewhere just north of 425 cases reported around the world, although the numbers change uh, pretty much daily. Hepatitis is, uh, is a condition. It's an inflammation of the liver that can be caused by lots of things toxins, uh, exposure to contaminants, you know, in adults, excess drinking. However, in most cases, it can be traced back to infection with um, some 
viruses known as the hepatitis viruses A through E. In this case, none of those viruses are responsible, and people can't, uh, physicians cannot figure out what is infecting these kids. As Meg mentioned in the intro, these are uh, kids who were previously healthy and showing up, you know, with acute onset of, of uh, liver inflammation. They, they're jaundiced, and uh, a number of them have gone on to need uh, transplants internationally. As I said, it's it's a rare event, but it's a an event that can have a very high consequence when it happens, and so it is really concerning people. Some of these first cases were reported in Alabama last fall, and Helen, you spoke to the doctors who treated these kids. What did they tell you? Well, they found it quite spooky because in any given year, a hospital that treats children who have liver issues, you know, develop hepatitis, we'll see a number of these cases of unknown etiology. They won't, and they may never figure out what's going on, but the numbers are very, very low. For instance, you know, the um, Children's Hospital at Birmingham, where these cases were first detected, they might have seen in a normal year, like two to four cases of, of hepatitis in children where they couldn't figure out the cause. Last October, from about mid-October to the end of the month, they saw four. So effectively, a year's worth of cases in two weeks. And, uh, you know, they were freaked out. They couldn't figure out what was going on. There was They were afraid there was some kind of a point source um, exposure, you know, maybe contaminants in water or something that were that could explain why they were seeing this number of, of really sick kids. But the children didn't live near one another. They couldn't, they didn't know one another. There was no real way to link them. So that's when people started looking further afield. Um, Alabama invited the CDC in to help with their investigation and um, and the investigation continues. So, Helen, as we noted, you know, these cases of pediatric hepatitis are being reported all over the globe. Um, what does that indicate about a possible origin or cause? Certainly at present, the thinking is that there's some sort of infectious cause, and that is what explains this increase. Um, the people in Alabama tested for a bunch of viruses because there are other viruses besides the hepatitis viruses that cause um, uh, hepatitis in children. They discovered that all of the children they tested had um, been infected with an adenovirus. And uh, in five of the nine cases that they had in total, they found it was adenovirus 41. They couldn't get an answer for the other four kids. They didn't have enough virus to, to, to identify the type. But the fact that they had five that were adenovirus 41 seemed like a real smoking gun. And um, certainly other places that have reported these cases have reported finding adenovirus 41 in some of their patients. The thinking currently is that it's not just a, this adenovirus that is triggering um, hepatitis in, in these children, that it might be the adenovirus and something else. This, vi this type 41 has not been seen to trigger um, hepatitis in children before, except in 
very rare cases where the kids had were immunocompromised. So in other words, it hasn't been seen to do this in healthy children before. And so the thinking is there must be something else contributing to this. And a lot of the thinking has focused around um, the possibility that this might have something to do with um, SARS-2, the virus that causes um, uh, COVID that, you know, a number of these children either had um, COVID infections when they developed hepatitis, not a huge number, but a lot of them may have had previous COVID infections. And so that's where the investigation is focusing at this point, I think. Our next question was going to be, what's the deal with adenovirus 41, which you addressed in that answer? And then the question after that was going to be, are experts concerned that COVID-19 <laughs> might be playing a role? But you addressed that. Well, I, I would like to plumb that a little more. Well, in that, so the potential for a COVID connection is kind of fascinating because, you know, we're, we talk about long COVID on this, on this podcast, about the many unanswered questions we have about the current pandemic, despite the fact that it is entering or soon to enter its third year. So, so that's kind of fascinating. What, what might be going on biologically such that this adenovirus could be combining with the effects of COVID such that we're getting this phenomenon? So I was talking earlier this week with a um, professor of pediatric immunology at Imperial College of London, a man named Peter Broden, who has an idea that I think is picking up some steam. It's known that in some people who have COVID that they don't clear the virus from their system you know, quickly. Sometimes a sort of reservoir of virus is established in the gut. And um, that probably explains why you, you would have heard earlier in the, the pandemic that some people who had COVID kept testing positive for weeks after their symptoms had cleared up. Broden's thinking is that this reservoir of virus in the gut of some people who contract COVID may interact when with other viruses when um, somebody else becomes infected. Uh, you get infected with an adenovirus. Um, there's something about what happens with your immune system that sort of triggers an over-exuberant immune response because you have this this ongoing infection in your gut with the SARS-2 um, viruses. And, and that over-exuberant um, response may be what's causing the damage, you know, is his line of thinking. One of the things that has interested people is that... Um, a number of, of places that have treated these patients have taken liver biopsies from some of the kids and, and the children who have had liver transplants. Obviously, there's been study of the failed liver. And so far, people have not been reporting finding adenovirus or damage that they would typically think would be caused by adenovirus in these liver samples. So people have been looking for another way to explain it. I think in the next day or two, um, the UK Health Security Agency is going to be issuing uh, an, their third technical brief on um, their investigations into the situation. And they have done some of the most uh, detailed investigations so far. And I, I have heard that they're planning on updating their um, 
uh, ranked list of you know suspect causes of this, and it'll be interesting to see what they're saying when when they do issue that report. Why is it that that they seem to be doing so much more helpful work, like in general on infectious disease? Is it is that even like a correct? Um, assessment of the situation. Um, and I guess like more broadly speaking, I mean, what what comes next here? Like, it, it's so fascinating, even how you find these experts who are just trying to untangle this very complex web. And like, it's like this mystery because they have to examine environmental factors. And like, they, the UK at one point mentioned a lot of these kids had dogs. <laughs> it doesn't seem like that's what causes it. But I mean, it's just it's what's next. <laughs> yeah, no, they have been doing great work. I mean, one of the things that has puzzled me was, you know, as you mentioned at the start, the first cases were spotted in Alabama, but we didn't really hear about it in the United States. Um, you know, Alabama alerted doctors in Alabama, and they called in the CDC, but the CDC didn't broadly alert doctors in this country until late April, which was, you know, after the UK said, hey, we've been seeing these cases and we're investigating this and we think this is a thing. I don't know how to explain why the CDC didn't um, um, bring this to the public's attention sooner. I, I, I guess that, you know, initially they may have thought it was only something that was happening in Alabama, but from about mid-March, they knew that the UK had cases and they still didn't notify people. So that I find puzzling. Um, yeah, you. Ha I mean, in an outbreak investigation like this, nothing's off the table until you can prove that it shouldn't remain on the table. You know, the thing about dogs is interesting, but they haven't found clusters of cases in families. And uh, that would lead you to wonder, okay, so unless these are all, all, all these kids are singletons, you know, they have no siblings, why would you see a case in one child and not see a case in his or her brother or sister? So um, I, I don't know that the dog thing makes sense, but but I think, you know, somebody will be chasing that down. So, Helen, before we uh, let you go, uh, we need to ask you about monkeypox, because that is, seems to be the latest outbreak that is grabbing headlines and raising some concerns. Can you tell us kind of what, you know, quickly kind of tell us what's going on with monkeypox? This is a big deal, and it's going to be a big deal for a while. Um, and I don't mean by that that, you know, we're all going to catch monkeypox. But this is a rare disease that... Um, you know, there's a reservoir in nature somewhere. Scientists still aren't certain what the host, you know, the original host animal for this virus is. But it, so it's not a monkey? No, it's not a monkey. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I thought it was. Um, okay. <laughs> that's, a, that's a good question. No, it's not a monkey. Um, and uh, it, you know, it, it has been found in sort of, I don't know, a half dozen countries in West and Central Africa. Um, and typically, when monkeypox cases occur, they happen in those countries, like the Democratic Republic of Congo has had a lot of monkeypox in the last couple of years. Nigeria has had a lot of um, monkeypox in the last couple of years. And before recently, you know, it was very, very rare to see a case of monkeypox outside of Africa. Uh, but since 2017, there have been sort of this increasing number of 
uh, single cases coming out of Africa, often Nigeria, where somebody gets infected, goes home to the UK. On a couple of occasions, there have been uh, a few local cases. So, you know, somebody comes in infected, infects a healthcare worker and maybe another person. Um, but until the beginning of May, the UK had only had seven of these cases ever. And since the beginning of May, the UK has now reported nine cases. Um, what is really concerning at this point is that it has become clear that um, the virus has managed to work its way into um, some communities of men who have sex with men. Uh, a number of the UK cases are men who have sex with men. Um, again, same in Spain. That is, in Spain is reporting cases. Portugal is now reporting cases. Um, the United States, as you know, uh, has now reported a case. A man in Massachusetts who went to uh, Canada, drove to Canada, uh, and when he returned, he was infected. Canada has not as the time of at the time of this recording, Canada has not officially confirmed that it has cases, but there are lots of media reports there that they have a number in Montreal. Um, you know, the fact that these cases are showing up over very wide you know, geographic distribution is really concerning. Uh, it suggests that this has been spreading for a while undetected. So, Helen, just tell us a little bit about monkeypox itself. How serious is this disease and, and how is it treated? So monkeypox is, um, the virus is related to smallpox, uh, which, you know, was a scourge on the earth that was uh, eradicated in 1980. It, it, it like chickenpox and other cowpox and other pox diseases, it causes um, lesions that can scar and leave pox, um, pox marks on, on the skin. Um, people who get it reportedly are, can be very sick. You know, it's like, um, flu like symptoms, but you know, body aches, chills, malaise, uh, fatigue, but then they develop this distinctive skin rash, uh, can start on the face. Sometimes you can get um, lesions on the palms of the hands, which is quite unusual. In these cases that are being reported, I think a lot of the patients have had uh, lesions on their penis, which is, you know, how they've been diagnosed because they've turned up to um, STD clinics and uh, thinking that they had one thing and finding out that they had a monkeypox. To date, I ha we haven't heard of any deaths among these cases. And I don't know that people really know uh, what one might expect in terms of a case fatality rate for this strain of the um, monkeypox virus. I, I think this one is proving to, to, to cause milder disease, but this is not a good thing <laughs> to get seeded into communities. It would be a it, it's it will be very important to stop this as soon as possible, although I'm not certain how that's going to be um, achieved. And you asked about treatment. There's no specific treatment for monkeypox. Um, I would think that cases are probably being treated with uh, if they're you know 
if they need something beyond supportive care, they might be treated with antiviral drugs that are that were developed to treat smallpox. But um, um, I, I don't know about how much of that is going on at this point. There are a couple of vaccines, if you were thinking about going there. A strategic National Stockpile has enough doses of smallpox vaccine to protect all Americans if it comes to that. But th- but this is not these are not vaccines that you can you know walk into your local CVS and ask to get right now. I mean these would not be in general distribution at this point. Helen, thanks as always for joining us. As always, it's nice to be with you guys. And next time, Helen, happier news. <laughs> yes, let's hope. Cases of COVID-19 on the rise around the country and Congress repeatedly failing to provide the Biden administration with more pandemic response funding, the U.S. could be headed for a disastrous winter. The White House is considering a plan to encourage second booster shots for all adults. But without more money, the federal government will likely run out of doses. And no one knows just how the process will work once the government stops buying and distributing vaccines. Stat Washington correspondent Rachel Kors has been covering this evolving situation for months, and she joins us now to explain. Rachel, welcome back to the podcast. Thanks for having me. So can you set the stage for us? Without additional funding, what will happen to the White House pandemic response if there is another winter COVID surge? So if there is another winter COVID surge, I think we'll see kind of the consequences of the kind of gap in funding that are playing out right now. The White House has said that they they don't have enough money to order you know, more, more doses of Paxlovid, which is Pfizer's oral antiviral. They're expecting to run out by September. They have canceled orders for therapeutics, for monoclonal antibodies, for treatments for you know people who are immunocompromised, and they don't have enough money to order more vaccines if they need them. They're still expecting to have you know quite a bit of supply by kind of September, but they are you know telling Congress that they're going to need around 87 million more doses of the Pfizer vaccine if they're going to do another big booster push. Testing infrastructure will lag behind, you know, if it if it's just reliant on commercial demand and funding has run out to reimburse providers for vaccinating, testing, and treating people who are uninsured. So if we really do face another serious strain on the healthcare system, I think we're gonna see um, these consequences be really evident. And Rachel, as you reported this week, there's a lot of uncertainty about just what will happen. Uh, when the federal government stops subsidizing the availability of vaccines and treatments for COVID. Um, How might that situation play out? And is there any clarity on when it might take effect? So we don't have any definitive answers, but I think there are some kind of trends that the experts and stakeholders who I talked to kind of agreed on. And one is that at some point, it's probably inevitable for the government to stop just completely paying for vaccines and therapeutics and just giving them away for free to like providers and states. So I think that that transition will happen at some point. We don't have a lot of clarity on exactly when that will be. Uh, One consequence is that instead of the kind of the federal government using all of its negotiating power to leverage cheaper prices, instead, it'll be more fractured between insurers and group purchasing organizations that buy you know, medical supplies for hospitals. Um, so I th- it's very possible that the price will go up. And I think Moderna um, 
commented, they told investors, you know, a couple of weeks ago that they expect that right now the government has been buying vaccine doses for roughly like sixteen fifty. And in the future, they're expecting that if, you know, that shift does happen, that Medicare could reimburse $60 a dose instead. So I think there's, you know, could be a considerable increase in the cost burden here. Another issue is equity. And there's right now, if right now the pharmacists are, you know, expected to distribute vaccines and therapeutics, even if people don't have insurance because they're not actually paying for the supply. But if they're not paying for the supply and nobody's there to pay them, then I think that puts especially pharmacists in a really tough position because, you know, they can't continue to give products and services away for free if there's no kind of safety net for that. And I think just the the transition period could be really complicated if there are different doses floating around And it's unclear if the government bought them or if commercial insurers are expected to pay for them. And yeah, it just just could be a big mess if there's not a whole lot of communication and uh, planning for that transition when it happens. One really important element on the timing of this is when these products transition from emergency use authorizations to full approvals. And I think I, you know, talked to a former CBER director at FDA who said that it for these products, unless the law changes, to be marketed in a more normal kind of commercial setting, they're going to have to get full approval, which creates all sorts of complications for new products um, if they, you know, come on the market under an EUA and there's a mix of products. Like, it just could get really complicated really quickly. So, Rachel, a lot of your reporting on this increasingly complicated matter traces back to what has become a very famous binder. Can you tell us about the White House's COVID funding documents and how you eventually got your hands on them? Sure. So I have been kind of talking to the White House about kind of how much money is left from all the um, COVID response packages that they've gotten for, you know, more than a year in hospital relief, you know, context. I've been talking to them since February in kind of in relation to some contracts for oral antivirals. I, you know, got a tip in um, February that they you know, we're running out of money to sign the contracts. And since then, I think it's been really difficult to get information. Um, I was getting some leaked documents um, from different places, but, you know, White House press secretary at the time, Jen Psaki kind of held up a binder full of COVID documents at one of her briefings, offered to let reporters take a look, and I took her up on it. And it was a difficult process, but long story short, I was able to get the documents. We publish them all. So you're you know, free to look through them um, on staff's website. And um, I think it's just led to some really important conversations about kind of what the future looks like and kind of what, what the status is of funding right now. So what is the status of funding? Like, it, it seems like a couple times we've gotten fairly close to a potential deal in Congress, and it was a lot less than the Biden administration wanted, but it was something. And then it keeps getting held up. And like, is this ever going to move through? How, how do these things work? Well, right now, I think there is sort of a tentative agreement for about $10 billion in funding, which is way less than the White House said they needed. But um, that's been held up by Republicans who are demanding a vote on kind of a public health policy at the southern border. Um, And it's a really fraught issue for Democrats and the Biden administration. So I think they don't want to hold an amendment vote on that right now. So it's possible that there's some breakthrough there if the situation gets desperate enough. Who knows? And just speaking from experience reporting in Congress over the past, you know, several years, I think lawmakers 
are, Congress is a reactive institution. Like when they see a huge problem, when they're getting calls from their hospitals that are overwhelmed, they're much more likely to actually kind of take action. So I think it sounds, you know, unfortunate, it's not an ideal way to plan for public health. But if there really is a very serious surge, we see a dramatic increase in hospitalizations like we did this winter. I think it's very possible that um, lawmakers will change their minds and decide to move more quickly. But at this point, they're not at that point yet. Well, Rachel, thanks for joining us. Yeah, thanks so much for having me. And that does it for another episode of The Read Out Loud. Thank you to Teresa Gaffney for producing this week's episode. Our senior producers are Hyacinth Empanado and Alyssa Ambrose. Our executive producer is Rick Burke. And our theme music is by Brian Joel. And we'd love to hear from you. Tell us what you like about this week's episode, what you didn't like, and if you have any ideas for biotech executives. You can do all of that by sending us an email at readoutloud at statnews.com. And if you like what we do, leave a review or a rating on Apple Podcasts or whichever platform you use to get your podcasts. See you next week.